What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid was the first sign that I saw as I started working for Facebook many years ago. I worked for Facebook for seven years, and that one big sign on top of our desks, What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid, invited me to look inside myself and actually realize that we can live a life with less fear. It helped me understand that even by asking myself the question, what would you do if you weren't afraid, I can discover my purpose, I can discover who I am and what I'm here to do. So what would you do if you weren't afraid? It's not just a poster on a wall, it's a way of living. Let me share a few facts about my guest today. She's a barrister, a campaigner, a champion of diversity and women's rights, an international negotiator, a foundation lead. She is a mother of four and a grandmother, and her husband is a former British prime minister. My guest today is Cherie Blair. And it really is a very special moment for me. I remember seeing the picture of herself and Tony Blair, Prime Minister Tony Blair, and their children standing in front of number 10 in that very familiar photo. I mean, initially it was, I think, with three kids and then with her fourth included. And I remember thinking about, wow, she has a big family and she is a barrister and she is now a wife of a prime minister and, and, and. I think even though I was still a teenager, I kind of was hoping for her that she uh, she can manage all of that. So it's quite beautiful, almost 30 years after, to be here as a mother of four myself, juggling similar, not prime minister or wife of prime minister challenges, but juggling different roles and, and hats and career and looking forward to hear from her how she navigated Thank you so much, Cherie, for being with us today on our podcast. It's my absolute pleasure. Cherie, so as we said, you wear multiple hats and, and roles in your professional and personal life. And you even carry two names, Cherie Blair and Cherie Booth. Correct. Well, obviously, I was born with Cherie Booth because that's my father's surname, not my husband's. And in my professional life, for most of my professional life, I've used that name. However, like most women, uh, but not all by any means, <laughs> when I got married, and especially when my children came along, and uh, obviously they were all called Blair, certainly in personal life, as a mother of my children, I started to use Cherie Blair, but still in my professional life, I would use Booth. And then when I became, uh, my husband became prime minister, I discovered that several people in Downing Street who felt it was inappropriate for me as the wife of Prime Minister to be called Cherie Booth QC. So I had to explain to them that that was my trading name, if you like, but they often were quite uncomfortable with me having a, a different name for my husband. I remember one point when we were hosting the European Union Summit and I said I wanted to use my name Cherie Booth QC. QC, by the way, is Queen's Council. And the foreign office told me, oh, you can't do that because none of the other spouses will know who you are. We have to use Cherie Blair. So I said, oh, OK. However, when we actually got to the summit and I met the wife of the Spanish prime minister, who is 
was not called by her husband's name. As is customary in Spain, she was called by the name she was born with. And the similar thing was the case with several of the Scandinavians. I realized that it was more about the foreign office's idea of what was appropriate for me to call myself than it was actually about other people's. Now, when it came to setting up my foundation after we left 10 Downing Street, I realized that though in the legal circles, people knew who Cherie Booth QC was, in the world, not everybody did. And that's why the foundation is called the Cherie Blair Foundation for Women. And is there any difference between those two Cheries, between Cherie Booth and Cherie Blair? Um, not in my mind, though. I think that possibly in legal circles, Cherie Booth QC is known for being a lawyer. Mm. In more general life, I'm known for being wife of the former prime minister. And there's there, two different things. One is something I've made and built myself. And the other is something that my husband has made and built with a little bit of help from me. Of course, <laughs> we know, we know. As you know, I'm very passionate about Jewish wisdom and I'm very fascinated by my discovery of the universal Jewish wisdom. Actually, later in my life, when I turned about uh, 40, I discovered that there is a beautiful Jewish wisdom, which is actually sit side by side to religion. And I guess that many people, when they hear Judaism or Christianity, or they think immediately religion, but many of uh, the faiths and the ways of life have uh, actually just beautiful ideas that sit behind and in the core of the faiths, which is about how to navigate life and the discovery that the Jewish wisdom has beautiful guidance to overcome challenges but also thrive on opportunities was really fascinating for me. I was already a, a mother and, um, I guess, an executive at, at work when I discovered it. Uh, it also helped me very much deal with the mental health challenges that I've been dealing with my whole life. And that's my story, Shereen. We'll tell it sometime. But one of the beautiful concepts in Jewish wisdom is the idea of crossing a bridge. And the idea that the whole entire uh, world is a very narrow bridge. I'm not going to say it in, in Hebrew how it's written, but this is how it goes. The whole world is a very narrow bridge, a very narrow bridge, a very narrow bridge. And the main thing is to have no fear, to have no fear at all. And this is part of... Um, I guess, Jewish culture, this song sung in Hebrew and in synagogues, but also in gatherings and in events or when it got quite tough in Jewish history. This is a song that was supposed to uplift and to remind us that life was never supposed to be easy and that we are actually wired to be able to overcome struggle. And fortunately or unfortunately, struggle is a vehicle for growth and we don't want to struggle and we don't want life to to test us, but life does. And the idea of being in front of the bridge, a tall bridge, a wobbly bridge, a, a narrow bridge, a scary bridge, a, a welcoming bridge. And the whole idea is to be very aware that we face bridges in our lives, like maybe deciding to get together with uh, our loved one and build a family or embark on a new career opportunity or to do something for someone in a meaningful way. And We need to be aware that we have a bridge in front of us and we choose whether to cross it or not. And then very aware of what stands behind the bridge. What's on the other side? Where do we feel that we belong but we are afraid? Could you reflect back and maybe share with us a memory of a bridge that you faced in your life? I think there are a number of things I could say. I think, first of all, I'd say that 
because I was brought up in a household all of women and my mum and grandma were so in determined that we should do so well I think I was almost like if you like the boy in our household so encouraged to explore my opportunities and so always always grateful for all the sacrifices they made for me but all the way through because as clever at school and then I went to university discovered I was good at the law I got the top first in the University of London I came top of the bar finals then I headed to start practice and it was only then that I realized that there was an obstacle there that I wasn't quite sure what I, well, I knew there was nothing I could do about because this was the first time I found that just because I was a girl, some opportunities were just closed to me. Mm. And that some people actually would say, you know, really the bar, the, the, the advocacy profession isn't really the right place for a woman. Or at the time people would say, well, actually, you know, we don't take women in our law firm or they'd say well we do take women but we've got one already and we couldn't possibly have more than one because what if they both became pregnant at the same time of course. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I found this rather bemusing actually because I, I, I'd always been told by the nuns in my school that if we worked hard and put our minds to it we could uh, we could achieve our dreams that is beautiful was that the message that the nuns gave you at school so women of faith encouraged you to have a full oh, rounded life Of course. Beautiful. Uh, and then when it came at the end of my training, uh, there was this question of whether I would be able to stay where I'd been trained or whether I had to go elsewhere. And, you know, it was said to me, well, Cherie, you know, there's two people for this role. One is a boy and one is a girl. So obviously we're going to um, go for the boy. And, you know, that also was a bit of a shock to me, particularly since even the boy admitted that I was cleverer and better at law than he was. And the irony was that actually here I am 45 years on and I'm still in the law. As for the boy, well, he was called Tony Blair. And guess oh. what? He stopped being a lawyer seven years later. He went on and did something else. I love this story. <laughs> so, however, what you say about the bridge, so um, they said, well, we'll try and find you somewhere else. They did find me somewhere else. And though it it looked a bit shaky, I stepped on there and I thought, I'm going to make this work. The trouble with that, of course, was I was so then determined to prove that mm. being a girl was not an obstacle. That, you know, when eventually I had my children and things for the first, it was only in my third child that I actually had any kind of concessions for maternity. And that was only because... The other woman by that time in my chambers was so ill with her first pregnancy that she, we were all self-employed professionals. So we all had to pay part of the expenses that she asked for an exemption from paying some of the expenses. And they agreed. And I sort of said, oh, hang on a minute. Uh, I'm pregnant as well. You know, <laughs> Can I have those exemptions too? Unfortunately, that doesn't happen in the law anymore. And there, mm. there are plenty of rights, of course, but it wasn't the case in those days. And so sometimes I say to young women lawyers, Do as I say, but don't do as I do, because I did all sorts of things like going into court 10 days after I'd had a cesarean in order to take a judgment in a matter, which then, of course, um, put me back in my recoveries from cesarean, cesarean quite badly. So don't do that. Every, yeah, woman no. is, every woman is entitled to take the right length of maternity leave for herself and to re recover fully after birth. Absolutely.
I also think that we often do that because we have this internal pressure. Maybe we'd call it kind of FOMO today, using today's vocabulary of like not being there. And what happens if when we sometimes don't feel safe enough in our place as women in the workplace, we feel that we have to um, yeah, be stronger, show up even more. But I think that's one of the things that maybe the pandemic has taught a lot of us, that actually there, there are ways that you can still be very productive and organize your work without necessarily having to be physically present all the time in the office. And uh, I think that's been something which has been very welcome for women. But actually, I think many men have also uh, found that a, a liberating thing. Absolutely. And I feel very hopeful for that, you know, for myself, but also for the kind of next workplace generation. And as you but said, you know, don't do like me, but no, exactly. uh, learn from my lessons. Yeah. But, you know, if you're if, I mean, talking about that, then I think, you know, it's all these are fortunate women's problems. You know, and I think of some of the women we work with in countries around the world when honestly their problems make ours pale into insignificance. So reflecting back on this year, and we're still in 2021, although I'm sure that many people are ready to start afresh in 2022, what has been meaningful for you in this past year? Well, of course, like everybody, my whole family has been affected by the global pandemic. The big thing, I suppose, that happened in this last year and and a bit during the pandemic is I went from having three grandchildren to having five and probably next week I'll have a sixth wow Um, god willing obviously (laughs) (laughs) um but that that is the due date next week and the sadness for me of course was because my daughter who gave birth to her first child her son last year but because she was remained in London because of her work and I was in the countryside and because of the restrictions on what was happening to pregnant women at the time. I wasn't able to be with her during the birth. Mm. And, um, you know, that was something that was a dis- great disappointment to both of us, I think. And what kind of a grandmother are you, Cherie? If you had to define yourself, uh, you're hands-on, you're hands-off, you <laughs> say... <laughs> well, I'd like to say that I'm not an interfering mother-in-law, but that's probably not true. <laughs> we can ask them. <laughs> yes, but um, no, I am hands-on. And for me, a grandmother's role is a very important one. I was brought up by my paternal grandmother as well as my own mother. And because my father left us when I was eight, my mother being a single parent, she lived with her parents-in-law. So my grandmother was a very big figure in my life. And in subsequent years, when I had my own children, my mum, sadly now deceased, was a very big figure in my own children's lives. So I have every intention of becoming a very big figure in my grandchildren's lives. So one of the ways I do that is we do help out with the childcare. That is beautiful. And hearing you say how meaningful your grandmother was to you immediately reminded me of my grandmother, grandmother Safta Khana, that's in, in Hebrew. And my grandmother jumped off the train on the way to Auschwitz. She had, mm. uh, she was a very strong and very brave and also lucky woman. And she felt something very wrong was about to happen. And she managed to, to jump off. She was off. right. Yeah. And she was right. Sadly, she was very right. Um, 
she jumped off the train and injured herself badly, but she survived. And uh, I also grew up kind of under her uh, wings, and she told me a lot about the world, uh, unfortunately, the horrible side of life, but she also prepared me for life, maybe even over-prepared me. So even though I was only lucky enough to live with her for less than five years, she is, like your grandmother, uh, a very meaningful uh, person in my life, so I can really relate to that. Oh, well, my, my grandmother, I lived with my grandmother since I was 18. And obviously after that, I came down to university and things, but she didn't die till 1987. So I was very, very close to her. But I'm interested in your story. Because mm. funny enough, our parish priest here, his mother's just died at 99 and she was from Poland. Mm. And he was recounting her story and as a young woman of 18, as the Russians came into Poland, having been driven out to Siberia and then subsequently after the Russians changed sides, being allowed to travel down from Siberia through some of the stands, through Iran, then ending up finally training as a nurse just outside Tel Aviv. Oh, wow. Uh, and subsequently in the Polish army and subsequently a few years later meeting her husband. He was a intelligence officer in the Polish army and they married in Jerusalem. Wow. So these stories of, of that previous brave generation who were very affected by war and the atrocities and the cruelness of racism and anti-Semitism, which affected obviously the Jewish people, but also affected others caught up in the war too. Those generations, of course, are now dying out. Yes, yes. And uh, if my grandmother was alive, she would be 100 this week. Uh, ah. So I I can uh, completely relate to the story that you shared and uh, and how important is the role of, of grandmothers. I think I'm learning this more and more. As uh, uh, <laughs> I'm still far from uh, my eldest is, is 16, but I see the relationship. Oh, yes, you don't want to be a grandmother yet. No, no, no. Sure. I, <laughs> I need a minute. I need a minute. But God willing, please God, I get to that. What about a meaningful moment or development in your professional life? Well, to some extent, of course, it is the Zoom. <laughs> yes, which um, we are on at the moment. For me, for a long, long time, I've been a great enthusiast for in IT. I was very early pioneering the law mm. in relation to that. And I was able to carry on as my full-time job as a Queen's Council as a lawyer when my husband became Prime Minister and I was the, the first spouse of a Prime Minister to do that because though Margaret Thatcher's husband, Dennis, um, obviously he was a businessman, he had basically retired by the time she became Prime Minister. So, And I would never have been able to do that without technology. So um, it's been interesting in my professional life as a, as a lawyer to see how we have adapted. And so mm. really I was continuing to do my legal work, including having hearings all through the pandemic, which makes me a very fortunate person compared to many others. But it yes. also had an impact on why I set up the foundation and the way we work in the foundation, because it was because I was such a fortunate person, was able to carry on with my work when I was in Downing Street. And because of that, I went around the world, met a lot of women entrepreneurs, women who, like my mother and grandmother, you know, were struggling to find their voice to fight against restrictions that were put on them by society and to support and feed their families and make a life for themselves. And I realized that 
one way to reach and help these women was to help them using technology. Because if a fortunate woman like me could use technology to enable me to combine work and family life, then so too, if we could get these technological tools into the hands of women in lower middle income countries, so we too could help them gain the benefits. And we found very much because of the pandemic, because we did a lot of our work already, we were delivering online, that it was relatively easy Mm. for the foundation to uh, deliver all our projects online. And as well as that, That we were able to keep in touch with the women we were working with. And what we found, of course, is that most of them were looking for really two big things during this last year. One was resilience. What happens when you have a, a business which sells to the public and suddenly the public aren't allowed out of the house? And the other is much more about working with women, some of whom were doing some, but some of whom were not previously doing any selling online and how you could use the internet and technology to pivot your business, to carry on with your businesses. And we did a lot of that, including not only working with the women we were already working with, but making all of our facilities available on our website. That is incredible. And you were ahead of the game. When did you found the foundation? Uh, I founded the foundation in 2008. Uh, We didn't really do our first program. It takes quite a long time to set up a charity in the Mm. UK. So we've been effectively delivering programs for 11 years now. And in that time, we've reached 175,000 women entrepreneurs in low and middle income countries. Why did you choose law as your profession? It was by chance, really, because I came from a a working class family and nobody in my family had ever had anything. Well, In fact, I was the first person in my family to go to university, let alone the law. But one thing I was very acutely aware of, because my mother and grandmother really wanted me to get the education that they hadn't had, because they both, for different reasons, had left school at 14. So I was very conscious when it came to choosing my university subject that everyone in my family up until then was already working at 16. Mm. And here was I at, at 18 contemplating another three years not really contributing to the household financially. So I wanted to do something that was practical, something that would, I thought, you know, enable me to earn a living pretty quickly after that. And I had a boyfriend at the time and his mother said to me, Cherie, you know, you love debating, you're (laughs) uh, you're always one for an argument. Why don't you try law? And then I thought, oh, my goodness, because my grandmother was a great fan of Rose Halbron QC. Rose Halbron was the first woman in 1949 to become a Queen's Counsel. And she was from Liverpool, like I was, and the Liverpudlians were very proud of Rose. She was the first woman to represent a client who was in danger of facing the death penalty. She was the first woman QC. She was one of the first women high court judges. She herself was a mother with the daughter who's a friend of mine and who became a QC herself and she was also incredibly glamorous Mm. and so for some reason I thought if Rose Halbrom from Liverpool can do it then Cherie Booth from Liverpool can do it too and I think it taught me a lesson about the power of role models and why it's so important that young women and girls do see women fulfilling roles 
which perhaps haven't always traditionally been open to women and letting them see that, you know, if she can do it, so can I. Oh, I love that. And, and Sheree, before we start our conversation today, I was sharing with the team here, with the technical team, a memory of seeing a photo of yourself and your family many, many years ago. I was probably a teenager and it was a very uh, distributed, I guess, picture in uh, Israeli news. And, and I remember discovering that you do all those things. And, you know, I, I think you were my role model. <laughs> Without even so it is very special sitting here, I don't know how many 20, 30 years after and having this conversation with you. And yes, I think often women, when they push through and when they challenge themselves, they because it can be sometimes a lonely place in one's head or sometimes one's heart, they have to remember that there are other girls, women watching and kind of cheering, even if we can't see and feel them. And I really think it's important that you've done all of this, and uh, I'm grateful. No, no, it's so important. And I think that we see this in the women we work with in the foundation as well. So many of them are role models in their own societies. And so many of them give back and sponsor and support other women. And you know, it's a really important ripple effect mm. of empowering women is that they do tend to have an impact, a wider impact, not just on their own lives, but also on the lives of those around them. You mentioned, Cherie, about kind of being educated or getting advice from nuns in, in your early age. And I don't know, it would be fair to describe you as a, as a woman of faith. I don't want to put or no, describe no, you. Absolutely, uh, absolutely would describe myself as that. And indeed, I'm also... Very, very interested and work with women of all faiths, which I think is also equally important. So I, I certainly support you in your mission mm. to, to know that so much good work that people of faith do. Tell even us if, more. Even if because we're all, I'm afraid we're all not God, we're all fallible. We sometimes fail in our mission and we fail sometimes in the message that we promote to others. How do you see almost, and this is my term, like faith 2.0, right? Faith in 2021. How is that part of your life? Well, I think for me particularly, it goes back to uh, being a woman of faith. I think all religions, the women are the backbone of most religions, but in most religions as well, they're not necessarily the ones that have the leadership roles. And uh, I would like to see in the 21st century a lot more mm -hmm. emphasis on the contribution that women make to faith in the world and that those who espouse faith messages aren't only male. Mm -hmm. and, and speaking of uh, giving back, I know we don't have a lot of time left, but I'm sure you've heard this before. One of the things I learned about Jewish wisdom that I was fascinated by is that actually the word charity in Hebrew, um, tzedakah, the root of that word is actually justice. It's just, and the mm -hmm. idea of giving is about doing the right thing. So you're not being kind or you're not kind of going beyond. You're actually only doing the right thing, which is caring and supporting and giving someone else. And that's the right thing to do. And I just found that fascinating how just the right thing is to do for others. No questions asked. Oh, well, I would certainly agree with that. You get so much more out of it. We have this global mentoring platform where we get men and women mentors in to give approximately two hours a month 
We train them as mentors. They become part of the mentoring community on our website. And they are matched with a woman entrepreneur. We're in over 100 countries. And so often, I mean, we get amazing feedback from the women mentees and how satisfied they are with the program. But the mentors themselves say, you know, how much they got out of it, how they learned more about themselves, how many of them, because we often delivered our program through working with employers and they nominate as part of staff development, people to go on the program. And some of people, because in big firms and big companies, you may have many skills. We don't necessarily use them all, particularly as you progress. And so some of them were able to revisit skills that they hadn't used for a bit and enjoyed that. But the overwhelming message that came out um, is how proud they felt that they'd been able to help some fantastic women and, and the satisfaction that they got for being what one of our mentees called the invisible friend who walks beside me on my journey. Love it. Love it. I just feel all goosebumpy when you said that. And in the book, I call it vitamin V, which is vitamin volunteering. And <laughs> when I was really suffering from my own issues and I was desperate, I thought, you know, maybe I should help someone else with their problems. And when I started volunteering, I immediately started feeling better. So it's the best thing to do. Well, uh, I hope that some people listening might like to look at the website and consider becoming a mentor. So where can we find you? That's in www.shereblairfoundation.org forward slash mentoring. So Sheree, I know we're at time. Uh, I do want to ask you one final question. And the question is, what would you do if you weren't afraid? <laughs> well, <laughs> what I would do is absolutely change the world so that every woman and every girl actually gets that equal opportunity that has the power in their hands to shape the future for themselves rather than having to rely on others to tell them what that future should be. And are you afraid or are you a fearless, strong <laughs> leader? Listen, everybody's afraid sometimes. And uh, um, maybe I'm not as afraid for myself, but I'm certainly afraid and constantly worry about my children and grandchildren. <laughs> not because of any other reason than I just think that's what mothers do. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. And thank you for sharing with us today. Thank you so much, Cherie, from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Thank you. Toda raba. It's my pleasure. And thank you for giving me this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, Cherie. I have to say I was a bit nervous before our conversation today because, as I mentioned to you, I used to look at your pictures in number 10 from my house in Israel, admiring your family and the things that you had to deal with, wearing your different hats as wife of prime minister, as a barrister, as a mother of four, and meeting you today has been a, a, a real moment for me and I'm sure for the audience as well. So thank you, Cherie, for trusting us today with your stories. I love how you shared how meaningful it is for you to be a grandmother. Mm, absolutely love that. If you'd like to hear more about Cherie and about what she cares about and what she's trying to do in the world, if you'd like to understand more and potentially be part of the Cherie Blair Foundation, I recommend that you have a look online and learn about all the awesome, important, critical work that the foundation is doing to close the gender pay gap and to correct the world. 
Thank you, Cherie. So as you know, at the end of each episode, this learning session becomes real and we ask ourselves some coaching questions that will help us bring to life the ideas from the podcast itself. Following Cherie's share today, I'm left with two key coaching questions for myself and also for you. One, a question of purpose. Cherie is purpose-driven. She looks at the world in a very honest way and says, what's not working here? What's broken? And then she asks herself, and what am I going to do about it? So now I'm flipping that question to myself and to you. In the world around you, your community, your workplace, even your family, what's broken? What's not working? What can be improved? And what are you going to do about it? That's our first coaching question. After listening to Sharia, I realized that some of the challenges that we face in a global level are so big and scary, but there are so many things that we can correct within ourselves where we are not dependent on anyone else. It's just up to us. So my second coaching question is, what is the one thing that you feel inside yourself, a thought, a behavior, an approach, an attitude that is not serving you at the moment? What is that one thing within yourself that you want to correct, that you choose to correct? And what are you going to do about it? Two very different coaching questions. One about the world outside of you and the second about your internal world, our internal worlds. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid? My name is Michal Oshman. I can't wait to introduce all of you to Sean Fay, my guest next week. Sean is so many things. She's a woman of power, of strength, of change. She is honest. She is fighting for what is right. So please do join me next time for our real honest conversation with Sean Fay. Thank you so much for all the incredible people that make this podcast happen. Thank you to our executive producer, Alex Hollins, Carrie Luter, our head of production, Leo Schick, our assistant producer, and Lucy Ditchmont, who is producing this show for Storyglass. Thank you so much. If you'd like to find out more about the concepts that we speak about on our podcast, about how to find meaning, about replacing fear with purpose, you are welcome to purchase my book or download What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid by Michal Oshman. That's me. And I'd love to get your feedback on our podcast. So please do share, review, give me feedback so we can grow and improve 